Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. everybody, welcome to another new episode of Dying Light. I'm your host, Pastor Alex, and it is Thanksgiving. It, well, it's technically Black Friday by the time this airs, but yesterday was Thanksgiving, and it's before Thanksgiving as I record it, so we're right in that week, and um, I had the pleasure of preaching this past Sunday night as a Thanksgiving sermon at, for the community, and boy, I just, I love this time of season because I love the holidays. I love the joy and the happiness that comes with it. And yes, I understand that not everybody sees the holidays the same way I do. And I understand that there's tragedy that can be held in these days. Um, Maybe it's somebody experiencing Christmas and Thanksgiving for the first time without a loved one. And they're learning how to uh, just go through this time you know, and relive those memories and relive those emotions. And it's tragic. I, I completely understand it. And and I have empathy for those people. It breaks my heart. But I want to come alongside those individuals and lift them up and, and help them, encourage them, and pray for them through this season. But for me, I look forward to Thanksgiving. I look forward to this time being with family and enjoying a smorgasbord of food and just an overwhelming amount of just relaxation and time away from everything for a few days. So I'm very excited that it's just around the corner for me. So tomorrow we're traveling out and uh, <clears throat> like I said, I get a couple of days off from just everything, family, friends, food, it's all good. I'm very excited for it all. So uh, we are getting ready and gearing up for Christmas. That is just around the corner. And we start Advent in our church this coming week because we want to celebrate it on four Sundays. And we're going to um, kind of move our church calendar around a little bit because we want that you know time in Advent. Uh, I kind of feel like with church being on, or Christmas being on a Sunday, Christmas Eve, I should say, on a Sunday this year, Christmas Day on a Monday, it's almost like we lose that Sunday morning because we're not going to come to church Sunday morning and Sunday night and have, you know, all of that. So we're we're going to do away with the Sunday morning service, have just Sunday night for Christmas Eve, and then Monday morning 
we have our Swedish Yolata service that we do. So, and that's a lot of fun too. 6 a.m. It's dark out and we all meet in the sanctuary. We have the lights all da- uh, all dark in the sanctuary. We all get lit candles. We walk in. It's really a neat experience um, because there's music playing and we have, it's just kind of one of those really nice, solemn, emotional services. Um, very short, usually about 25 or 30 minutes long. And uh, so a lot of exciting things. Uh, in the ministry coming up. I love this time of year. This is always my favorite. And you should know that if you've been listening to this podcast for any amount of time. Uh, so that's, uh, is kind of just really the lowdown. Um, I'm going to put it up in the show notes because I, I, I want to draw attention to it, but I am going to do a fun, a GoFundMe page. It's not GoFundMe. It's that give, send, go. Uh, so it's the Christian side of it. And I am seeking help with getting my book published. I want, um, I would love for people to come alongside me and help support and fund this big project because it is an expensive project. So I've got just a, a, you know, an amount out there. If you want to give a few bucks, if you want to give more, great. If you'd like to give more than 25, let me know. And I will make sure you get a uh, physical book as a thank you for that. Um, so that's the, that's the dealio um, that uh, I've got. I'll, like I said, I'll put the link in the show notes if you are interested in supporting getting the book published because it's just it's just an expensive endeavor and uh, it's a cost that because I'm not an I'm not an active writer I really can't you know what are you going to call it? like I, I just can't I can't answer for it. It's just it's one of those it's an unnecessary burdens. <laughs> to write a book. Um, and I would like it to go through a, a publisher that's going to help with distribution. It's going to help with um, advertisements and all of that stuff. Because if I just do it on Amazon, then I have to do it all myself. And I just don't have that type of time. So I'd like to partner with a company and do it that way. So uh, we are in chapter 18 of Matthew. We're going to look at who is the greatest and we're going to see the disciples bickering here just a little bit, as per normal. And uh, we will uh, gather on our journey through together. And we're going to look at this little passage, these six verses. Um, seven through nine is the temptations to sin. I don't know if we'll have time for that one. But I would like to start picking up speed here a little bit and kind of get through some of this material. Because we've been in Matthew for a long time. And uh, I've been taking my time, and I'm I'm still going to do that. But I'd like to just kind of peruse through the material just at a quicker rate instead of rabbit-holing some of the episodes up. So uh, chapter 18, this is an extensive teaching on sin, forgiveness, and community of faith. And so that's what we are going to see in this chapter. Um, Let's begin here with verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin it would be better for them to have a great millstone fastened around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Oof. Harsh. Boy, it's like <laughs> you get the disciples like, you know, going back and forth, you know, bragging, hey, everything's great. We just saw Jesus transfigured. 
you know, the transfiguration. We've seen all these wonderful miracles. We know what's going on. We, you know, we're, we're, we're going to front row seats in the kingdom of heaven. We, we got it. We got it made. And so they're like, you know, well, who's going to be the best? You know, who's the best of us, right? And Jesus says, nah, y'all are needed to take a step back and pulls a little child to himself and says, you have to be like this. You have to have this innocence. You need to have this, this desiring to just willfully believe. And I, I, you know, we talked about this passage when I was in seminary and uh, I really love this because I have two children and my children trust everything I say and they believe everything I say. And so my job as a parent, as a father, is not to lead them astray. And so they don't know any better than their mother and father as being their guardians. And so they faithfully walk with us and they live life with us and they believe what we tell them. So let's look into this material, right? So these disciples are having this reoccurring dispute about who is the greatest. We also see it take place uh, in Luke chapter 22, we'll see it take place again in uh, chapter 20 here. And Jesus uses their, their question as an occasion for his fourth major discourse in which he teaches how Christians should act towards one another. And so we have to take into consideration a few things. You know, when we talk about the child, this is probably a younger child. Like I have a five and a half and a two year old could be about in that age group. Um, could be a little bit older, could be a little bit younger. There's no definitive, you know, age that this particular child is that Jesus picks up. But the innocence of that child is what is being demonstrated. The one who willfully and you can call it blindly just follows Jesus because they don't know any better. So this dispute, like I said, just kind of continues on. And, and it really kind of shows the ignorance maybe of the disciples and just how they see it, but they're still, they just don't fully get it. They just don't quite handle everything just yet. And so Jesus changes the whole entire perspective of their question and uses it as an opportunity to showcase how they actually should be acting not just to one another, but to everybody, and especially to believers. Because the text says here in verse 6, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin. So if these children have faith in Jesus and you are causing them to sin, you might as well be strapping that millstone around your neck. But let's get to it here. So in verse 3, we see the turning, right? Truly I say to you, unless you turn, this is to change one's thinking as to what makes the greatest in the kingdom of heaven and to become like children. The child served Jesus as an object lesson in humility. And so to become like that child, that innocence, the, the, the blind faith, you have to release your arrogance and your pride and you have to just humble yourself. Like a child knows no pride. They don't know arrogance. All they know is who they love and what their, you know, like what their mission for that moment is. That's that's it. You know, children are complex and yet simple. They don't have 
the adult characteristics that can cloud and shroud them to make mistakes like we do. So as I mentioned, that child's humility is evident, especially in the in the dependence on and the trust in a superior. Greatness in the kingdom of uh, God is characterized by the humble who trust in the Lord. Just as a child neither takes nor seeks sovereignty for himself, so this shows that there is not to be sovereignty among ministers. So, interesting little thought. So this one child, the one who humbly trusts in the Lord, Jesus identifies himself with such children back in chapter 11 and again and we'll see in chapter 25 coming up. So, causing to sin, the prompting of a fellow believer to sin through either tempting or the use of bad language or maybe it's um just your overall character, your your behavior, the things that you're doing, you're causing others to, around you, friends, your neighbors, your family to fall into sin. Uh, these all, I mean, the list is essentially endless on this one. But uh, these who believe, those who believe, the faith and the kingdom of God are not limited by age or mental abilities. I really, really want to stress this because... I, you know, coming out of the Baptist Calvinistic circle, I was very much gung-ho early on that you had to make a proclamation of faith before you could be baptized. And I was so bent on pushing that down people's throats that you can't possibly believe until you can understand. But a child doesn't understand everything. You know, my my daughter's got a vast vocabulary, but you have to explain things in a frame that she, as a five and a half year old, can understand. Because if I'm down here talking to her as I would talk to my wife, or as I talk to another person, or as I, you know, would would share gospel, you know, with like deep theological connections and threads, she's not going to understand that. She can understand the basics, and she can understand kind of the, you know, the general scopes of all of it. But if I start talking to her about you know, all of the, the theological terms, she ain't going to understand anything. And so, but she still believes. And I think we, we have to get out of our heads that we have been taught this presuppositional viewpoint that you can only be a Christian if you can articulate your faith or that you can only be a Christian if you've said the right things, you've done the right actions, and then you've made the proclamation and you've been baptized. That has that is nowhere found in Scripture. Instead, what we see here is to humble yourself like this child who has just obediently followed Jesus. This child just just goes. They there's nothing that they have in it of themselves. They just are following Christ because they see their need, their dependence with Christ, and that's what a child does. You know, my son and daughter, they need mom and dad to provide food for them. And so they will follow us when they need food and they will drag us into the kitchen because we can make them the food. And it's just it's an over and over thing that we have to really struggle and wrestle with. You know, is it biblically sound to say that a person is not a Christian unless they can make a certain proclamation? Is baptism only valid when they've made a, a statement of faith? And 
for those who believe in the credo baptism, is it really an outward demonstration of an inward change? I would challenge you to go into scripture and find where that verse is in relationship to baptism. Because, and I'll give you a little hint, you're not going to find it. It's not there. Baptism isn't our work. It is not an obedient thing that we do. It is Christ performing an action to us. Ephesians 5.25 shows us that it is Christ washing the church. And we see it in Colossians, and we see it in Romans, and we see it in the gospel accounts. We see it all throughout the New Testament and Peter's letters that baptism is for those who are, are, are surrendering themselves and is for people who are removing themselves out of the equation. It is not you doing it. We go in and we baptize and we make disciples. We go in and we preach Christ, we baptize them, and we make disciples after they're baptized. Then we teach and raise them up. Now, the argument that that you know that I love to see the the, the Credo Baptist push is that there's no you know infant baptism in Scripture. Well, we're told to baptize all people in all nations. That includes babies. We're also told that we have demonstrations of whole households coming. We don't know how many people are in those households. So logistically, we could argue that there potentially could have been babies there. If an entire household is baptized, then that meant all people, children, women, servants, workers, anybody who lived in the house, they're baptized. There's no uh, prerequisite. There was no requirement. It was done to the whole household. And so we see this over and over, and this is really the first generational basis of Christianity. They're going to people who are adults and preaching to the gospel. And those, you know, we would assert that in these crowds, there probably are children there, yes. But by and large, they're going to adults and going to male adults because that's just what the culture was like. The man dictated the religion in the household. And so they preached to the men and the wives would follow suit in whatever religion that man was. And so if they're converted from Judaism to Christianity, then the wife would become a Christian. And all of the children subsequently would become Christian as well. So we could argue until we're blue in the face. In fact, I, I'm going to try. I really want to get this debate with Nick from Bible Dingers because I, I, I want to just, I want to just lay it all out on on infant baptism and why it's vital to the church and vital to the church's health and success. In fact, I've got two babies that I'll be baptizing here within the next eight weeks. I think. For sure, one at the end of January now, and I'm waiting on another date to schedule, which could be either here in December or uh, in January. So I've got two babies baptized. I've, I've baptized a ton of kids and babies, and I love it every single time. It is just the most magical moment in a preacher's life is to baptize a baby and welcome them into the family of God. Now you know me. I could talk about baptism all day long, right? It's a very important thing for the Lutheran faith. It's exceptionally important in our eyes. And so with that being said, let's kind of uh, shift gears here a little bit. We're going to just wrap and summarize this up, and then we're going to move on to these next couple verses because, like I said, I want to kind of make the time worth it and get through it. So here, uh, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is demonstrating that the humility is the trademark 
or hallmark of greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Humility means confessing our inability to do anything at all to become worthy before God and to earn salvation. Humility depends entirely on God's mercy for forgiveness. So uh, that is really what it is, right? It took Jesus Christ to come as Savior who became one with the sinners to redeem them. It took Christ to do the work, not us. We have nothing in our in, in our entire existence that we can offer to God that would be even remotely close to starting paying off the tab that we have. So uh, let's move on here. Let's look at verses 7 through 9 because this is kind of a continuation, right? Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands and two feet be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter your life to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. So uh, a little another hard punch of verses here. Um, Jesus really does not mince anything when he's talking about sins and the punishment for that. So we start here, verse 7, the temptations to sin. This is a Greek word is also translated to take offense, and that's used in verse uh, 6 of chapter 11, chapter 15, 12, and 17, 27. And to cause to sin, uh, as we go all the way back to uh, these couple last previous verses here, the world sets up numerous stumbling blocks over in which people trip and fall into sin. So, right, we just talked about the kids being the, the ones that are being caused to sin, you, that person being the stumbling block and driving them towards that sinful nature, the world is good at setting up people to fail. I mean, just look at your phone uh, and go to social media, and I'll bet you within 10 minutes, something that you struggle with is going to somehow pop up or show up in some form and cause you to want to pursue that sin, whether it's drinking or gambling or porn or whatever it is. There are ads and illicit posts and just garbage material out there. The world is good at setting up these stumbling uh, blocks for you. So sin has corrupted the world. Temptations will persist until the day of judgment. Jesus pronounces doom on anyone who causes another one to sin. It's also noted uh, about the judgment day in 1 John 2.16. So we have a lot of pieces here connecting back to the previous set with the children, right? The doom falls upon anybody who is deliberately causing another person to sin. Now, make note, you might do stuff that will cause somebody else to sin, but you may do it not deliberately. It's when you are going out and forcefully trying to do so. This is That's the key marker here. When you are actively attempting to to cause somebody to sin. So uh, back in chapter 5, verses 29 through 30, we talked uh, on the Sermon on the Mount there. Uh, Jesus is speaking similar words here against 
the sexual sins. So there's when Jesus talked about the lost back there in chapter five, those couple verses, he's using similar similar language here. He used strong and hyperbolic language to emphasize the seriousness of sin. So here's the thing. You, if uh, you were to follow all of what Jesus says to cut off your hands and your feet and your eyes, you would literally come into heaven with no eyes, no hands, and no feet. And you would probably still fail at withholding your sin. This is not what Jesus is telling you. He's not actively saying, go do these things and cut your hands off. But it is the drastic move by the person to eradicate whatever is causing sin in their life. If your phone causes you to sin, get rid of it. Figure out a way to mitigate the use of it. If it's your TV, if it's a newspaper, if it's books, if it's you know alcohol in your house or, or toxic relationships with people, friends or neighbors or whatever, get them out of your life. There are so many things that, as I said, the, you know, the temptation and the stumbling blocks are, are everywhere. There are so many things that we have to take into consideration if we are going to live a life of righteousness. This is the drastic measure that a Christian should be taking. It doesn't mean that we do. And thankfully, at the end of the day, Jesus still forgives us of our sins. But we should not be living actively in sin. So... This is the, the goal of the Christian is to eradicate sin. You know, I, I'm not a big fan of it. Uh, you know, I'm not a big fan of the Puritans, but I think the, you know, a quote that Jonathan Edwards gives kind of fits in this, you know, kill, uh, be killing sin, least sin kills you or, or whatever, something like that. So, you know, actively pursue the need to eradicate the sin from your life before that sin destroys you. If it is something in your life that you can actively control, whether it's addictions to whatever it is or anger issues or whatever, figure out what your triggers are, get them fixed, get them out of your life, whatever it may be. You know, if it's a trigger of like your cell phone causing you to fall into, you know, a relapse into pornography, figure out what apps or what you're doing that's causing you that. Is it too much downtime? Is it too much alone time? Surround yourself with godly people. Do these things. Take action to find a way to fix the problems of sin. Because I'll tell you what, they're not going away. And and I'll even guarantee you this, when you get rid of or you conquer one sin, another one's going to pop up. That's just the way it is. So you have to spend your life every single day drowning the old Adam in you so that Christ may reign supreme. That is how we have to do it. Every day, kill that old Adam in us. But that little squirmy bastard is such a good swimmer. That's what Luther says. So I'm quoting Luther on it. Because when you try to drown him, he just comes back every day. Luther had some foul language. And Luther hates the old Adam. And I don't apologize for my language, but I think it's a, a rightful thing because it is the thing that will kill you. It is the thing that will send you to hell. And we have to be better than that old Adam in us. You have the ability to do this. This is this through the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the ability to withstand the temptations of sin. You can do so. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect at it, and it doesn't mean that you're going to be sin-free, but it means that you can conquer these, these long you know, t- trains, uh, strands of sin that have been in your life, whether it's 5, 10, 20, 30, your whole life, 
however many years, the plagues that you carry, the burdens that you carry, the millstones that you drag around, you can get rid of them. But you're going to just strap on new ones. So, you know, don't be comfortable with your sin, but be comfortable in knowing that Christ still actively forgives you. And that's the faith that we carry. And when we start to realize how much Christ has done for us and how much that justification means for us and that no matter what we do, we can turn back to the cross and understand and know that Christ forgives us. Having that assurance leads us to be more godly and righteous than more secular and worldly. Knowing and having the assurance that Christ actively and continuously forgives us of our sins is all that a Christian needs to power on through their stumblings and falls. So don't, please, do not cut out your eyes and chop off your hands and all that. Don't do that. That's not what this passage is advocating. But do eradicate your sin. Get it out of your life. Fight it. Fight against the temptations. Tell the devil to buzz off and use all the explicit language that you want. I don't care. (laughs) Whatever it takes. Get that out of your head. Get it out of your life. Get it. Be gone. Right? Send it on down the road. So... Here we have the summary of the passage here. One need no look no further than these words of Jesus to see how much the holy God hates sin. Here the law strikes us with all of its fury. Who of us can say that our hand or foot or eye has not caused us to sin? We all deserve to be thrown into the lake of fire. Thank God that Jesus' hands and feet were pierced for our iniquities and that his eyes beheld our sin in order to take take it and turn the Father's face from it. I'm going to read that again. Thank God that Jesus' hands and feet were pierced for our transgressions, and that his eyes beheld our sin in order to turn the Father's face from it. By his wounds and precious death, we get to enter life. It is only through Christ. That is it. It doesn't matter how good you uphold the the killing of your sin. It doesn't matter how much of your sin you can kill. What matters is what Christ has done for you. You killing your sin is just a, a moral behavioral piece because it's going to benefit you and the people around you. It's going to make you a better person when you are destroying the things that are holding you captive. But Christ has already defeated sin, death, and the devil. So you, having the power of the Holy Spirit, can drown that old Adam, and you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, can refrain from those temptations. So, may God bless you and keep you ever in his steadfast love on your journey to being a better person, a more righteous person. And when you don't, God forgives you. So get up and start over tomorrow. That's just the beauty of the gospel. All right, well, I should put a disclaimer. The gospel is not you being a more moral person or a better person, and those things don't get you to heaven. It is through the blood of Jesus Christ, the forgiveness of your sins, the belief in that death and resurrection. Paul says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the grave, then you will be saved. That is the gospel right there. That is the most basic elements to the gospel. You can build everything else that you want on top of it. That's it right there. Boom. Done in 
move on to the next show. Ladies and gentlemen, have a great week. It has been a pleasure. I hope you had a wonderful Thanksgiving and Christmas is around the corner. Let's get a rolling towards it in the most jolly and blessed attitudes that we can carry as Christians and just and just really irritate the world by how happy we are. God bless, ladies and gentlemen. Have a great week. Get to church on Sunday. We'll see you all later. Serves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.